Psalm 73. Let's read it and then we'll look at it together. Psalm 73. A psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore His people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places and you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, you, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in, my, in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell all of, tell of all your works. Amen. In the 1880s, uh, King Leopold II was, was king of a small and newly formed nation of Belgium. Uh, Leopold had this insatiable craving to see his power and influence increase like, uh, and the, that of his newly formed nation like the other European nations at the time. And so this was during the age of imperialism and colonialism when, when nations were gaining power and wealth by going out and, and, and claiming territory and rule over occupied, other occupied lands. This is why you go throughout many parts of the world today in Africa and, and many parts of South America and other parts of the world where you find French and English and Portuguese spoken because of this age of colonialism. But Leopold, he looked over kind of the globe at the time and, 
and saw that most of the other lands, many of the other lands of the world had already been laid claim to, but there was the unexplored interior of Africa, not the coastal areas, but the inside. And so King Leopold raised up a private army and sent them to what we know now as the Democratic Republic of the Congo. He was going to take this territory as his own personal possession and and in hopes that it would become kind of this fountain of wealth for himself and for his newly formed nation of Belgium. So he was obsessed about finding something of of value there that he could exploit for wealth and gain. And, And he found that the area was ideal for the production of rubber tree plants. And so and the timing was great because there was high demand for rubber, the kind of the industrial revolution coming, coming online then. And, and, and yet the, the harvesting of these rubber tree plants was extremely difficult. And, and so much that the people of the region, they did not want to even do the work for King Leopold. But he wasn't going to be stopped. And so King Leopold, he unleashed his private army, the Force Publique was his army, and, and he unleashed them upon the Congolese people and he forced them into slave labor. So they were required, all, the people were required to meet, to, to meet a rubber quota, and, and it was nearly impossible to keep up with what was demanded of them. And so to enforce this quota, the king and his army used whatever means was necessary. They would burn villages down to threaten people. They would use whips and chains and rape and just unthinkable brutality to get the people to work. The most infamous tactic was to cut off ears and noses and hands from slaves who were thought to be lagging behind in their work. And they would make piles of these severed ears and hands and and they would put them in strategic locations to remind the people to work harder for the king. One Belgian writer described this, this time... And he said, the basket of severed hands became the symbol of the Congo. The collection of hands became an end in itself. Force public soldiers brought them them to the stations in place of rubber. They even went out to harvest hands instead of rubber. They, the hands, became a sort of currency. They came to be used to make up for shortfalls and rubber quotas. The force public Soldiers were paid their bonuses on the basis of how many hands they collected. I mean, this was a reign of horrendous, unimaginable violence and terror. This evil and gross violation of, by any standard of human rights. And one that eventually did bring a great outcry from other nations around the world. There were an estimated 10 million, that's a conservative estimate, 10 million Congolese people who died during Leopold's regime. Yet we know this is not some isolated incident in the annals of human history. I mean, this is one of hundreds, thousands of examples we could probably use to introduce this passage. This this is the world we live in, a world filled with evil and unjust suffering. Past and present, and it will be in the future until Christ returns. It's around the world, and it's in our own backyard. The the world we live in is one in which tyrants often prosper, and the innocent suffer. 
This is the world, as if you're there in Psalm 73, this is the world that the writer of this song, Asaph, what he came face to face with in his own day. Asaph was one of Israel's main worship leaders. He was appointed by David for the very specific purpose of raising sounds of joy for God's people. You see his job description in 1 Chronicles 15, uh, verses 16 and 17 there. He and a few others were, quote, to play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals, to raise sounds of joy. That was, his, that was what he was called to. That was his job description. He's the guy in charge of leading God's people and singing God's praises. He's their Patrick work. And so, this is, this is Asaph. And so, he wrote and led songs. Uh, that, that he, he wrote songs and he led Israel and, and the congregation of Israel in singing songs that he wrote. And he also led them in singing songs that others wrote, like David. Here's just an example of a song that David wrote that he no doubt led. This was part of their worship repertoire. Second uh, Samuel 22. Just listen to these words. This is... Asaph had probably led the singing of this song many times. Here are some of the words. Psalm, uh, 2 Samuel 22, verse 26. With the merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man you show yourself blameless. With the purified you deal purely. And with the crooked you make yourself seem tortuous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. And so God blesses the righteous. God punishes the wicked. I mean, that's taught throughout Scripture. You can go to many places. But this is a song that David wrote. This is a, during, after his deliverance from, the text says, from, from all of his enemies, including Saul. And so he writes a song of deliverance. And God is merciful with the merciful. And He is, he is tortuous with the wicked. And so I, the way I picture this, Unfolding as I just imagine Asaph sitting down and preparing for Sabbath worship. He's going over the set list like Patrick does during the week and, and practicing maybe on Sabbath morning there. And he's 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 here. This is this song is in the set list, and he's singing these words of David, inspired by God, and he can't get them to come out of his mouth. How can he honestly sing those words? Because his eyes are they're open to the world around him. And he sees a seemingly massive gap between those words of David and what he sees going on all around him. There, there are King Leopold's getting rich and powerful through violence and oppression, and it didn't seem like God was making himself tortuous to them. It, it, if anything, it was, the, it was often the righteous to whom God seemed tortuous. And so Psalm 73, just keep that in mind. Psalm 73 is the, it's the wrestlings of a worship leader's soul, one who's called to raise sounds of joy while looking face to face with gross injustice and suffering. That's the context of Psalm 73. So Asaph, he struggles deeply with this question why do the wicked prosper? Why do they prosper? He wrestled with this because he, again, lived in a world full of Leopolds. Great and small. We do too. We do too. We, it happens in large, dramatic, society-affecting ways that make it on the news, and it, and it happens in the workplace, and in school, 
and in families and in neighborhoods and in communities. This is the kind of stuff that really bothered Asaph. Murderers, oppressors, exploiters. They're, they profit. They have an easy life. They don't seem to have to answer to anybody. And yet the people who are loving and serving and working for God, they just barely get along. It bothered Asaph. And it, should, and it, and it bothers us, if we're honest. How do, you, how do you raise sounds of joy when gross injustice is occurring all around you and most likely to you. How do you do that? Well, this is the, the kind of the big idea of the passages and that we're going to see in the, in the, as we conclude that God can restore our confidence and joy in Him in the midst of an evil world, an unjust world. He can and He does. And we'll see how He does it with Asaph. Psalm 73, in a, in a strange and roundabout way, it does raise sounds of joy for us, for God's people. But it's not in a trite way, it's not in kind of an emotionally frothy way, a feel-good way that we often try to do today. This, no, that's not how it happens. But you see it right there at the beginning of the psalm. It begins on this grand note, which is the key to the whole, whole song. He gives his conclusion right at the beginning of the psalm. Verse 1, and it's this, Truly, God is good. This is, his, this is His conclusion. Remember, He's writing this sometime later, and the very first words, this is His climax, Truly, God is good. He's good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And so He, he begins with this conclusion. He's saying something that's true about God. And He says, truly, take it to the bank. Surely, whatever your translations, I don't think any say take it to the bank, but, um, but they say, surely God is good. That's very different from saying that wild card game last night with the Cowboys and Seahawks, was, was, that was good. I'm not going to try to use the sugar bowl as an example of this. No, no to, to say that God is good, it speaks of God's benevolence. His, his, his kindness, his, his acting on behalf and the benefit of others for their good. That's what he's saying when he says God is good. This is hugely important in understanding this psalm because this is, this is where he concludes. This confession, God is good, truly, without question, because Asaph is wrestling with the situation in it when it doesn't look like God is good to Israel, and to the pure in heart. But He is. He's good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And those are, those are simply uh, parallel statements there. With Israel and pure in heart. Israel equals the pure in heart. It's, it's the true Israel. It's those who are on the inside what they look to be like on the outside. They look Jewish and these are God's people. And so he, he comes out of this painful experience and process and, and his struggle is ended. His faith is restored. We read through that just a moment ago. And here is his declaration. God is always good. And, and the reality is, it often takes suffering. I think we can know this from experience. And we've seen it. We know it in our own lives and we've seen it in other lives. It, it often takes suffering and trials and afflictions and pain for the truth of the goodness of God to really take root in our hearts and lives. Again, I, it's 
listened to Frank share at uh, Zeta's service yesterday, testifying to the goodness of God, losing a wife for 47 years. They deeply loved one another. We all got to see that. And, and there's loss and there's grief, but he's, he's confessing the Lord is good. His grace is, is, is sufficient. And so we, we don't generally declare and revel in and in, in the goodness of God when, when everything's just clicking, when the children are healthy and when the barns are full and when the retirement accounts are just growing like crazy and every, everything's, the promotions keep pouring in. No, we, 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 will, we are certainly to acknowledge God's goodness and kindness in those moments, but we tend to kind of forget in those moments. But this kind of declaration of, of Asaph here of, of God's goodness. It's not the cry of somebody who's just kind of skating through life with, you know, experiencing nothing but ease and bliss. It, it's, it's, this is a, a one who's, who's hit rock bottom, but he's lived to tell about it. You, you find out at the end of the worst day of your life, after you get the call, what? God is always good, and He does all things well. That's, that's what he's saying here in this, in this conclusion. So that's the end. He starts the psalm with this conclusion. But what brought him to this glorious declaration? And we see it there in verse 2. We see his, his confession. His confession. But as for me, but, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. My steps in, had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. It's like my feet slid out from under me. I got home Thursday. The dog was ballistic, was so excited to see us. And I was excited to see him too. And it had been raining all day and was still raining. But I went out to take him to, to do his business. And I go going down the stairs of our back deck, which are all slippery because they've been raining all week. And boom! My feet slipped out. I don't know why I'm telling you this, but I just thought about that. This, I, I under, we understand that feeling of losing our footing. But here, the psalmist saying, it's a, I almost did that. My feet almost went out from under me. And, and his confession here, it's raw and it's brutal and it's honest. There, there's something that came into his life that shook his very core. And, and it's, like, it's, it's almost as if his feet almost slipped. He almost fell away. It's, that's how it felt to him. That's what the experience was like to him. And so we, we find out at the close of the psalm that God was the strength of his heart. And, and that even when it felt like his feet were slipping, God was holding on to him. But, but the way he experienced it, the way he, it felt to him in, the, in that moment was this came into my life like a raging flood and it felt like I was going to lose my footing and be swept away. That's what it was like to him. And you probably had that experience. Why? Verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And we say, that's the reason? But don't take this struggle too, too lightly because what he wrestles with this in this passage is something we all feel. Asaph's problem is, is not essentially suffering, but injustice. He looked out and he saw the arrogant, the boastful, the proud, the, those who resist the authority of God, those who refuse to live under His authority, and they prospered. And deep down inside, he thought, that's not right. That's not right. 
It says he saw the prosperity of the wicked. Prosperity, the word here in Hebrew, it's, it's our word shalom. If you know any Hebrew word, that's probably the one. It's peace. It's, he's saying, I saw the shalom of the wicked. If there's anything the Bible tells us, it's that the wicked shouldn't have any shalom. There's not supposed to be rest or ease or peace for the wicked. Asaph says, I looked out and I saw those horrible, wicked people experiencing shalom, prosperity. Why? Not, not, he's not asking, why do bad things happen to good people? This is, why do good things happen to really, really, really bad people? Why do they prosper? Conventional biblical wisdom says that the righteous experience peace and the wicked experience misery. The wicked, according to Psalm 1, Psalm 1, we know this, the wicked are supposed to be like the chaff that the wind drives away. But these wicked men seem to be like trees planted by streams of water. They seem to be prospering in whatever they do. What the righteous are supposed to experience. They shouldn't even be able to spell the word shalom, let alone experience it. So what happened? Asaph said, God, what, what are you doing? What, are you asleep on the job? Let me just put a face on this dilemma for us and maybe in your context. At your job, you work hard. You, you, you work with integrity, eight to ten hours a day, and you stay, you, you get there on time, you leave, you, you, you leave at the end of the day, you're faithful, you don't gossip, you do your work with joy, and there's some other man or woman who works with you and he's, she, he or she's a liar, a sluggard, a cheat. And when it comes time for promotion, the cheat gets it, and you're stuck in the same windowless cubicle. Or a single mother who's raising four small children because her cheating husband ran off with the secretary. Now, now he's out living La Vida Loca and posting, you know, in pictures on the beach and Instagram, and and you know, takes the kids once a month for you know to Disney that kind of thing. And and she's there changing diapers and preparing meals and helping the kids with homework and cleaning the house and doing all the stuff. Or a teenage girl is sexually abused. And the perp walks free because of some technicality. And he's, so he's high-fiving his buddies as he leaves the courtroom and he's got his head held high and all these prospects in front of him and her life's just in shambles. Maybe you haven't experienced some kind of catastrophic injustice committed against you that's just rattled you to the core and shook you the very essence of... shook your faith so that, so that it felt like you were about to be washed away... But you, you probably will if you haven't. And, and we experience all kinds of injustices all the time, and they're not free from pain. And so, so we get this. And so verse 1 to 3, he gives us a conclusion, and he gives us this raw confession, and, and so the, the final verdict where, where he's going to land, and then the dilemma that starts the process of arriving at that final verdict. And so that's what we've seen so far. Now we get to see his soul laid bare as he reflects back on this struggle. That's what the rest of the psalm is that brought him to this conclusion. Surely God is good. How was he thinking when his feet almost slipped? Where, where were his eyes looking? What was his perspective uh, when, when it felt like he was going to be swept away? Perspective makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? And so I got a little cartoon. I thought this was humorous. 
you can't see this probably. Maybe you can. I don't know. There's, there's, a, there's a little guy on the island, and he sees a guy off in the boat. He says, ah, a boat! And the guy on the boat stranded in the water sees a man on an island. Ah, land! You know, see? Different perspective has different orientation. Perspective that has nothing to do with the sermon. I just thought it was humorous. Um, all right, so we're going to see these different perspectives. We're going to, we're, the outline for the rest of our time, it's going to follow through this psalm, the progression in pronouns through this psalm. And you can see it in your English translations. We read this earlier. So there are these three perspectives of the heart uh, that we can have when our, when our feet almost slip. So the first perspective is, is it's looking outward. We look, we look outward. This is the perspective of the comparer. And this is the one who says, but God... Look at them. Look at them. And this is what we see in verses 4-12 to 12 here. As, as Asaph recalled his soul's struggle and the depths of his struggle, he remembered where he first looked. He looked at them. He looked at the wicked. This is what, he's, this is what he did first. And these are the observations he made. Look at these with me. We'll hit these quickly. The first observation is they, they don't know what pain is like. They don't know pain like I know pain. Look at verse 4. They have no pains in death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Spurgeon summarized this way. They have, they have a quiet death gliding into eternity without a struggle. Now when we hear fat, we don't think, oh, that's a great thing, unfortunately. But that's, that's not how we think. But in their day, it was, it was a sign of wealth. It wasn't, they didn't just have enough to survive. They had plenty. They, would, they enjoyed abundance. So he's just saying they have... As Asaph looks up, they have easy lives, easy deaths. They live fat and happy, they die fat and happy. Second, he says, look at them. They live trouble-free lives. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They're sheltered from the pains and struggles that other people experience. They're insulated because they have money and power. I mean, this is a reality. I mean, most... You just look at the blessings and privileges that we enjoy that so many in the world don't have just because we have abundance. But I'm, that's not a criticism. I'm just saying that, that, that this is this is Asaph looks at these wicked prospering and saying they, they got things that the rest of us don't have. They don't know what it's like to experience real pain or real difficulties. This is what he's, this is what he's saying. And he says, look at them. They're vain and violent. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. So, for them, evils, it's, it's not something to be ashamed of. It's a source of boasting. It's like, a, it's like something they flaunt. It's a status symbol for them. They do, and they do whatever they have to do in order to get their greedy desires. One, one commentator I read this week said, they live at the expense of others. That's, that's what he's saying. He says, look at them. They're greedy. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. The more they get, the more they want. Their, their, their abundance that they enjoy, their prosperity, doesn't result in gratitude or generosity. It's not, wow, the Lord has blessed me so I can be a blessing to others. That's not it at all. They just want more and more and more and more. And Rockefeller syndrome, you know, how much, how much more, how, how much is enough? His answer, just a little more. This is, this is them on, going crazy with this. Look at, look at them, they brag and bully. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. So they, they mock everything, nothing sacred to them, and they, and they just breathe out threats. Uh, just normal business for them. 
He says, look at them. They blaspheme God. They set their mouths against the heavens and, and their tongue struts through the earth. That's a really graphic word picture, isn't it? One commentator said it this way, they, they daringly talk as if they were God Himself and thus the whole world is theirs. This is how they boast. He says, look at them. In spite of, in spite of all of that, they still have great influence on people. Verse 10, they, therefore His people turn back to them. Literally, kind of the idea is they, they turn and praise them and find no fault in them. So, the wicked and all their pomp and all of their success and all their prosperity, they, they attract these kind of success worshipers. They, they, the Kool-Aid drinkers. And so they gather following. People that are loyal to them. And he goes on, look at them, they're, they're practical atheists. They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? They, so their thinking is, because, because God has, hasn't stopped us, He must be oblivious. Either He doesn't see, or doesn't know, or doesn't care. So this, this is how they live. And then finally, He says, look at them. They, they, live, they live the good life. They live the good life. Behold, this is kind of a summary. These are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. So these who deserve to suffer, these who deserve swift justice, are always at ease, always growing more prosperous. The, the rich get richer by breaking God's laws. This is what he, this is what he observes. So you put all this together, and it just shakes Asaph to the core. And he's, he struggled. This is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not what we see in Scripture. This is... Why don't these fat, greedy, fear-mongering, blasphemous dirtballs get what they deserve? This is His struggle. But God, look at them. They're, they're getting what the righteous deserve. They, they appear to be blessed. They should be. God should be treating them tortuously. Now, let me say something. And we're going to say more at this at the end, but I want to be sure you see this. Asaph didn't see all there was to see. And it's, that, that's an important thing to remember when you're observing other people. And when you see them on social media, everything's polished and everything's pretty and everything's cute. Don't trust your observations of other people. All is not as it seems. Our perceptions are faulty. Our, our perspective is skewed, or at the very least, it's, it's incomplete. And so we have to remember that. There was more to the story than what Asaph observed. <laughs> I guarantee it. He didn't see... Or there was their end. What they faced. There was private anguish. There was guilt. There was conflict. There was turmoil. There was, there was a lot going on that he didn't see or didn't acknowledge. He didn't see everything. But what he did see troubled him deeply. His skewed perspective, it bothered him. So how do you respond to the prosperity of wicked? Do you, you sit and fume and moan that your boss has it so easy when you have it so hard? Do you simmer with anger and hatred towards those who, who, who have wronged you or see, and, and then seem to live with no ill consequences for doing so? Do you tend to be, be honest, do you tend to be a comparer? Is this the perspective that you often have and you've been treated unjustly? Are, you're always comparing your life situation to others. 
looking with envy at the ease of others. That's not the answer. That's not the perspective that we need. But there's a second possible perspective, and we see it in, in the psalmist in Asaph here, and it's, it's, it's looking inward. So we look outward to other people, but then what he does is he turns inward on himself. You see the change in pronouns here, the shift there uh, in, in verse 13. He, his eyes move from them, from the wicked, to me, I. This is the perspective of the complainer, you could call him. But God, look at me. And so, the first observation he makes about his own condition, look at, look at me. All this godliness is for nothing. Verse 13, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent. I have served God for nothing. That's what he's saying. I mean, that Old Testament perspective, keep that in mind as he says this, that, that keeping your heart pure, washing your hands, it's, it's trying to live a life of, of avoiding sin, living according to God's Word, standing for righteousness, obeying God's law. This is that Psalm 24 kind of language. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is, to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord. So Asaph's basically saying, I've done that. I've done that. I've lived how God wants me to live to the best of my ability, but as I look around me in my situation, it's all, it's all been in vain. All for nothing. It did not provide what it promised. Now, I mean, just what we said about earlier, our perception of others, our perception of ourselves is also very faulty and skewed. We'll say more about that in a moment. But he's, this is what he's saying. Look at me. Godliness for nothing. Second, he says, look at me. There's nothing but trouble to speak of. For me, verse 14, for all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. The, the wicked never suffer. I seem to suffer all the time. And, it, and it, the text doesn't say this. It's not explicitly stated. But it could be that Asaph is suffering at the very hands of these wicked ones who are at ease. It may be the case. Every morning, he's basically every morning I wake up and I get kicked in the face. It seems that God treats his enemies better than he treats his friends. There's, just, there's nothing but trouble to speak of. Then, look at me. To, ma- to make it worse, I can't tell anyone. See that in verse 15? It's interesting. It says, if I had said, I will speak thus, if I tell others, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. The New English Translation, uh, the Net Bible says, if I had publicized these thoughts, I would have betrayed your loyal followers. And so while he had these wrestlings going on in his, in his own soul, he, he refused to verbalize these doubts lest he destroy the faith of, of, of others. And there, there's this line that he will not cross. And so and here he is as this worship leader for Israel. And, and, and I just... I'm thinking, what a contrast to what we see so often in our day, where even Christian leaders and and pastors and authors and there's this kind of uh, this this uh, respect for those that just kind of blabber their doubts about God in the name of authenticity or being real. And Asaph saying, "No, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to betray this generation of children." Then he says, "Look at me." This is so difficult and painful to understand. 
Verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I, I, I kept looking for an answer, but I, but I couldn't come up with one. It's not inside of me. I couldn't make sense of this. That's what he's saying. It was, it was futile to try to look inside and figure this out. It, I just say, is this the perspective you tend to have in times of trials? I know it's not. we're not like in one camp or the other. Asaph wasn't. He, he saw both of these in his own life. But do you tend to look inward? Do you tend to turn in on yourself? But God, look at, look at me. Poor, pitiful me. Self-pity is really pride. It's an elevated view of self, saying I deserve better than what, I'm, what God's giving me. And which means it's a lower view of God, saying God, you don't really know how to run the universe as well as you think you do. I, you're, you're, you've got it mixed up. You're giving the wicked what I deserve. You're giving me what they deserve. And so, but this is this is Asa. And, and you notice the the self-confident wicked and the self-pitying righteous here, they have something in common, and that's self. There's this focus on self. And 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 so both are constantly looking at themselves. Maybe maybe you're not generally a comparer looking at others, being envious of others, but maybe you tend to easily fall into complaining. Woe is me. What perspective do we have in times of suffering, in times of injustice? Looking at others, it never, it never works. Comparing ourselves to others. Looking inside of ourselves, that's a dead-end street. It, it, it's, never gonna, it's always going to fail. But there's a third perspective of the heart that we see here in the psalm, and this is where we need to go. And it's that, it's that upward perspective. It's looking up. It's the, it's the perspective of the confessor or the worshiper. But God, look at you. Look at you. So Asaph, he stops looking at the wicked. He stops looking inside of himself to try to figure this out, why this is happening. And he looks to the Lord. So he's looking back at verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. And then that little word, until, until I went into the sanctuary of God. This is, a, this is the turning point for him. Asaph doesn't tell, tell us uh, you know, what happened there, how it happened, exactly when it happened, but maybe it was when the priest stood up and read the Holy Scriptures. Maybe it, maybe it was as he or some other worship leader stood up and said, hey, turn to Psalm you know, whatever, and we're going to sing. This didn't quite happen like that, but maybe it was. Maybe he heard a prayer being offered behind him as the people are offering their prayers to God in the evening. I don't know. This is how God works. He uses means to change His people. Asaph went to the place he was supposed to be, and God gave him this realignment of perspective. A profound paradigm shift. A, a, a reorientation of his faith. A recalibration. And so our, our inclination when we're stumbling, when we're faltering, when, when our heart and flesh seem like they're going to fail, when, it, when our feet are, feel like they're slipping out from under us, our inclination is to pull away and to turn in on ourselves. Isn't it? When we wrestle with those questions, how, how can God be good and just and loving when I'm going through this and when we see this happening, 
If He loved me, he, this, this wouldn't be happening. When we, when we struggle with that, when we get into that frame of mind and we, 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 can, we can begin to lean on our own understanding, we can rely on our own wisdom, knowledge, experience, perspective, and there's nothing good that comes from that. Don't shut yourself in a room with yourself when you're struggling in this way. You're not the person you need to be with. God uses the people of God. He uses the Bible. He uses the corporate praying. He uses singing. He uses the ordinances, the Lord's table. He uses these things, all the stuff that takes place in the assembly. I mean, in our context, as we apply this to ourselves. Why? Why? Because it's, it's here you realize that God, not... Here, this is where I realize God, not me, is at the center of the universe. He is the most important person in the universe. He alone is exalted. He alone, as we sang earlier, is on the throne. And, and Asaph is saying here, God, God realigned my heart as I started to worship. God allowed me to see things as they really are. He changed my perspective when I came into the sanctuary. So God, God uses, for our, in our context, God uses the church to realign our hearts so that as we hear His Word preached and, and, and we, as we stand to sing His praises and as we pray together and as we eat and drink together, all of these things, He, he uses that to recalibrate us. And so when you're huddled away in your own bedroom or your den or your, your, you know, some closet in your house and you're talking to yourself and you're listening to yourself and listening more than talking, that's a very dangerous place to be. I know, I know this is an inclination of my own heart. I see this pattern in my own life. Asaph would say to you, get up, go to church. I realize I'm talking to those who are here. Um, if you're listening over the internet, you know, <laughs> why aren't you here? Hear God's word, sing God's praises, be with God's people. Remember Christ together. I mean, a simple line in a hymn may be what God uses to realign your perspective, what you're facing. Uh, words of truth may just explode in your heart and soul. Uh, seeing other people trusting God through trials will strengthen your own heart. This is why Ephesians 5, Paul tells us to sing. As we sing to the Lord, we also sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs making melody in our hearts to the Lord. And so, uh, so sometimes this happens. A brother or sister, maybe will ask you, or you've had this situation where you talk to, you haven't seen somebody in a while, and you say, well, I haven't seen you in a while. Where have you been? Or you call them and say, I haven't seen you in, in the Lord's Day worship for some time. And this is, this is the response that you've given or you've heard before. Well, I've been going through some really hard times. And... My heart isn't right. I know, that I, I know that I could go, but I wouldn't mean it if I was there. I wouldn't mean what I'm singing. And I just, I need to get, I, I, I need to ta I'm just taking some time off to sort things out and get my heart right before I go back. That's, that's, not, a, that's not a good way of thinking. It's like saying, I'm sick, so, the, so, so I'm going to stay away from the hospital. No, that's, that's crazy. Listen, if you, if you can't mean it when you sing it, I'll mean it for you. And because there's Sundays, there are Sundays. I'm sitting up here 
I'm about to preach, and I am crying out to God. Asking for help because my own heart's not there. But the confidence is not in me and what I can muster up in myself. But I need you. I hear your voices singing behind me and you're singing to me in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And the Lord has used that so many times. You mean it for me. And, and, and so this is, this is what we need. This is, this is what God used in Asaph's life. This is what He uses over and over in ours. This is the normal means that He uses to keep us Keep our perspective right in times of justice and suffering. It's the perspective of the house of God that helps us see things as they really are. And there's, this is why there's such beauty and power in the Lord's Day worship. And there's God's given us His first day of the week for our realignment. This is one of the means, one of the reasons. The assembly, we come in here and we sing words and we hear words read and we read the Scriptures which testify to this. We hear people pray with trusting the Lord and we hear things. God is King. He, he reigns. Christ is Savior. The Spirit lives and, and moves. His grace is sufficient. The, 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 God has a plan. Through Jesus' blood, all my sins are forgiven. That... that through the righteousness of Jesus, I'm acceptable to God. We're reminded last week. So we hear these truths that we desperately need constantly. And it's in this context. This is why we have the Lord's table and we celebrate. Often, we put Christ's substitutionary death at the center. And this is how we regain equilibrium. Our spiritual center of balance is restored when we come and gather on the Lord's day. This is God's design. So it reminds us that, that no matter what we're going through, Christ is enough. He's enough. In sickness, in suffering, in persecution, job loss, conflict, Christ is enough. So what happened? What happened when Asaph went into the sanctuary? Look at verse 17 with me again. Until I went into the sanctuary of God... And then he says, then I deserve their end. Does that surprise you a little bit? We might say, I was really struggling until I came to church and I was reminded God is love. <laughs> I mean, that would be a great thing. And I'm not saying that's, I'm not joking about that. That's very true. But Asaph says, my feet had almost slipped until I went to the sanctuary and I saw the end of the wicked. Eschatology. In this sense, it salvaged Asaph's faith. There's a God of justice who is going to bring payday to the wicked and to the oppressors and, and to the tyrants of the earth and the Leopolds of this earth. He's not given all the answers. He's not given the whys and the hows. He's not, but he's shown and reminded that God is going to take care of things and that's enough. I mean, We saw this in Second Peter in particular with those false teachers who were who are prospering and gaining following, and everybody was flocking to them. And, and this is one of the encouragements that Peter said was encouraging. Just don't, don't forget what's coming. There's going to be judgment. But he also, he sees that the wicked, they're not as sure-footed as they seem to be. Verse 18, Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, you, when you rouse yourself, you despise them 
as phantoms. So their, their easy life is not as easy as it seems. It's, it's only an illusion. Because there's an after for the wicked. There's an end. They may look fat and happy, but they are walking on slippery ice or slippery stairs. Um, their fall is imminent. Payday is coming. There's an old, the old hymn, This is my Father's world. So let me not, not forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is ruler yet. It's a simple truth, but this is what Asaph's confessing. Seeing, seeing God rightly, he, he sees the wicked rightly. That's what he's saying. So we, as, he gets, as he gets his perspective reoriented, he, he, his perspective on them now looks differently. He sees them through the lens of truth. And he also sees his own heart rightly. Verse 21. Now he sees himself rightly. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Embittered, it's a word for vinegar, sour, uh, seething. I saw the ugliness of my own heart. God helped me own it. I was... Was embittered. All all this self pity, all his self absorption, all of that turning on himself, it was graciously shown to him by God for what it was when he went to the house of God. His foolish ways were now clear to him. Verse twenty two. I was saying, I was like a big dumb animal before you, Lord. And I I know again in our kind of contemporary evangelical culture, it's kind of trendy to to speak about you know getting mad with God and getting up in his face and all that kind of language and and he, he can take it. When Asaph did when Asaph did that and then he finally thought clearly about his posture towards the Lord, his conclusion was I was like a senseless dumb animal. He doesn't look back fondly of that posture towards God. And verse twenty three this is, this is so glorious. Verse 23, Nevertheless, in spite of that, in spite of me being like a big dumb animal, in spite of my heart being so sour and embittered towards you, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Even when it didn't seem like it, He's saying, I was always with you. Not, I am always with you because deep down inside, I'm a pretty good person. That's not his conclusion. It's no, it's, I, I'm with you because you've taken hold of me. God's doing His initiative. During the agonizing trial, God seemed to be far away. But on the other side, when His sanity is restored, He says, no, I'm still standing because God never let me go. Not standing because He's a cat and always lands on His feet. He's standing because, he, because God held Him and always holds Him. And He's confident that He will always hold Him and will bring Him to glory. And we have this strong assurance too, brothers and sisters. Verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but You? It's beautiful. And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides You. 
I mean, the change, the change of heart Asaph experiences, it's, it's not because God immediately acts and intervenes and changes the circumstances and, and you know, brings judgment down on the wicked. That's not it. It came from this renewed perspective of who God is and therefore who they are and who He is. It's, a, it's, this, it's this renewed perspective of God and His worth, of His sufficiency, His grace. God is again Asaph's treasure and the soul desire, his soul desire and, and, and for worship. Uh, one older commentator said of this, resolution comes eventually, not in the intellectual harmonization of doctrine and experience, but in the recognition of how large is the believer's wealth in having God. It goes on verse 26, my heart and my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's saying, from, from my perspective, if it's up to me, I'm going to fail. Reminded that last week. We, we fall short. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And that's beautiful language. Asaph is a Levite. And remember about the Levites, God said, you don't get real estate. You don't have any inheritance. God is your inheritance. And here Asaph saying, God's my portion forever. He's enough. You've probably heard this quote from C.S. Lewis. The, the, the one who has everything and God has nothing more than the one who only has God. And this is Asaph's declaration. Verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Again, at first, it seemed like Asaph was slipping and the wicked were secure. But in the end, in reality, the wicked are slipping and Asaph is secure. There's a refuge in God. He didn't come to that conclusion, brothers and sisters, by looking at all other people and comparing himself to others. He didn't come to that conclusion by turning in and navel-gazing and, and just trying to sort, go into the mountains for the weekend and sorting and just having some time to look in on himself. That's not it. He came to this conclusion by looking up to God, looking to Him, looking at His perfections. He says that I may tell of your works. Remember, he said, remember earlier, I, it's like I, I kept quiet when my heart was wrestling and agonizing in the trial. But now that I'm on the other side and I realize how good you are, I can't keep quiet. I'm going to tell of your good works. There's this confession, truly God is good. And he's saying here, now I'm going to tell that good news. I'm going to tell of your goodness. So we're not to, we're not to look outward, not to compare, not to look at the wicked, not to look at the unjust in our lives or we see around the world and think and, and compare ourselves to them. We're not to, to look inward. We're to, to look upward. We'll be a comparer. We'll be a complainer. We'll be a confessor. Confess what's true of God. We need a bigger view of Him. We need a right perspective of God. Believer, what is your perspective right now? Where, where are you looking? What are you... What are you saying in your trial? But God, look at them. God, look at me. 
God, look at you. You know, we see a great example of this in First Peter. Uh, again, I can't help but make those connections. But in First Peter, First Peter, which is all about suffering in the church, and and Peter writes many things to encourage them and says to them, "You're going to suffer. You're going to walk in the steps of Christ. You're going to be persecuted just as He was persecuted." But what does he keep doing? Remember what he kept doing in this letter. He keeps pointing us back to Jesus. Saying, consider Jesus. And he, and he says to them, yes, verse 21, for instance, 1 Peter chapter 2, Christ, uh, for this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in His steps. So, he's, so in some sense, we, we suffer like Jesus and Christ has left us an example. But it's much more than an example. Because you remember, from there... He stops talking about Jesus suffering as an example, but he talks about Jesus suffering as our substitute. He says, if you're going to if you're going to suffer well in this life, if you're going to face injustice and reviling and insults that you don't quote deserve, if you're going to face that well, you're going to have to keep your eyes on Christ and remember what He's done in 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 coming and paying the price for your sin. So he goes on. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And then look at verse 24. He himself and he alone bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So we look to Christ, brothers and sisters. That's our only hope to actually having a right perspective in times of suffering. And so out of the excruciating process and struggle of injustice and facing that, we co- we've got to come to the same rock-solid confession that Asaph made when we look at Jesus and we say, surely, surely, God is good. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray, I, I realize there may be some here today who, who maybe can amen to a statement like that, but it's, it's not maybe the honest confession of their heart. Maybe they're like Asaph in verse 6, not Asaph in verse 1. And, and there's still some bitterness and there's still the, the, the real raw wrestlings of their souls. I pray that even as we sing now, that as we're reminded of these truths this morning, as we sing now and sing to one another and as we sing to You, that You would continue to work in their hearts that we might mean it for one another today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.